Mindfulness Mode 381. A minute or so later, I started to feel really good and energized and felt kind of uh, buzzed, if you will, with a lot of cognitive capabilities, a lot of uh, enthusiasm. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness right here on today's Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. As always, thanks for joining us here on the show. Great to have you with us, and we always appreciate when you subscribe to the show. It helps us out. Before we get started with today's episode, I'd like to offer you a way to wake up in the mornings with a new kind of awareness, a new kind of upbeat outlook. I have a 12-minute meditation that I've recorded for you called Awaken with Focus. It'll help you be alert and it'll help you just be right on after waking up in the mornings. You'll feel invigorated, fresh, and dynamic. You might even be surprised how much your newfound vibrancy will inspire those around you. Be the energetic person you want to be. Download this free guided meditation at mindfulnessmode.com forward slash awaken with focus. That's awaken with focus. So today, I'm talking quantum physics with my esteemed guest, who is another outstanding scientist I met in Atlanta when I was speaking at the Zen Consciousness Conference at the end of September. My guest is Professor Emeritus of Anesthesiology and Psychology, Director of the Center for Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona. He was the lead organizer of the first Science of Consciousness Conference, which started 24 years ago, and he's still the co-chair of that annual conference. He's best known for developing the orchestrated objective reduction theory, along with Dr. Roger Penrose. And in this theory, it observes consciousness's rippling vibrations in the structure of the universe. These vibrations resonate from the microscale where quantum physics operates to the microscale of the brain. Now, in case you're a little bit lost with this, no problem, because I'm not a scientist either. Maybe you are, but I found this interview absolutely fantastic. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my interview with today's esteemed guest, Dr. Stuart Hameroff. We're here today with Dr. Stuart Hameroff. Dr. Hameroff has done a lot of study on consciousness. He's a professor at the Center for Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona. And he just spoke here. We're at a conference in Atlanta called the Global Zen Consciousness Conference. And I was thrilled to hear his talk. He shared so much depth, so much of his research. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But uh, Dr. Hameroff, it's great to have you here. And the, the first question I like to ask is, what does mindfulness mean to you? Well, thanks, Bruce. It's nice to be here. Uh, mindfulness to me means, uh, and I'm not an expert in it, but it seems to mean to me being in the moment being uh, totally present in the here and now and not being bogged down with uh, uh, worldly problems or your own personal problems or any obsessive compulsive uh, thought processes or um, mind wandering and that sort of thing, being totally present in the here and now. Uh, and uh, that's kind of a liberating uh, feeling and uh, without uh, taking away your worry and your stress pretty much. So that's what it means to me. 
Well, at the conference, we heard a lot about consciousness, of course, and there was some talk about string theory. That's not what you're all about. You're more about general relativity and quantum mechanics. Can you talk a little bit about those topics? I work with a physicist, Roger Penrose, and uh, uh, he has uh, uh, his views on physics, which uh, don't include string theory. The problem with string theory is that you have these vibrating strings, but there's no, what are they vibrating in? Roger's approach is to look at the structure of space-time geometry, and in strings, the strings are vibrating in some background space-time geometry. And he's more interested in the space-time geometry itself. The other problem with strings is that they require, depending on the version, 11 or 26 dimensions. And uh, Roger believes that there's, there's only the four dimensions, uh, three in space, one of time, but there are multiple scales. And uh, when other people talk about uh, higher dimensions, I think what they should be referring to is going to a deeper scale, smaller, faster. And when you do that, you go into the structure of the universe, you get into the quantum world where you have non-locality and it becomes vast and spread out. And you can actually be in, in touch and contact in some way with uh, the fine scale structure of the universe, which may include wisdom and the Akashic record and things of that nature. So I think of it as more of different scales. And when you meditate uh, and go into enlightened states or altered states, you're going deeper into the fine scale structure of the universe, normally within the within the brain because there's space-time geometry there. But when you get to a quantum level, it can, it can be vast and, and entangle with other conscious entities and other um, things. So... Uh, not strings, but uh, general relativity and quantum mechanics. Well, I loved how you talked about consciousness and you talked about uh, consciousness can be anywhere in the brain and you talked about a deeper level and that's what you discovered when you read An Emperor's New Mind. And that was a few years ago when you first discovered that book, wasn't it? Right. I got interested in structures inside neurons, inside all cells called microtubules when I was in medical school in 19... 71, 72. I was studying cancer and uh, uh, in, a, in a cancer lab, and I got interested in how the chromosomes were separated and pulled apart by these structures called centrioles and mitotic spindles, which were composed of structures called microtubules, which are found in all cells, particularly in neurons. And they have a cylindrical lattice structure, and they seem to have some kind of at least intelligence, if not consciousness. And just for the basis of intelligence, I was wondering how they knew what to do and where to go. And when I looked at their structure, and at that time I was uh, also learning about computers, Boolean switching matrices and that sort of thing. And it seemed to me that the microtubules might be little tiny computers inside all of our cells. And therefore, that consciousness would have to go to a deeper level inside neurons. And, uh, and so I followed that, and I realized that that gave a tremendous increase in the information capacity of the brain. Because in artificial intelligence and, and the singularity and so forth, the idea is that each neuron or each neuron firing is one bit. In a computer. Uh, however, each neuron is incredibly complex and has uh, an internal structure with its own uh, information processing capabilities. And when you think about a single cell organism like a paramecium that doesn't have any synapses, it's very clever. It swims around and finds food, finds mate, has sex, it, it can learn. And it does, it's yet by AI standards, it would be only one bit. And the paramecium uses its microtubules for processing and, and information. And it, it occurred to me that uh, microtubules inside neurons might do the same, and consciousness was at a deeper level. However, as somebody pointed out, that wouldn't necessarily explain consciousness, feelings, 
uh, emotion, uh, choir, uh, uh, all the things that we experience uh, on a daily basis and a moment-to-moment basis. And um, uh, there was something missing. And fortunately, uh, that person recommended I read a book by Roger Penrose called The Emperor's New Mind, where he was saying that there was something uh, that consciousness was not a computation. There was something outside the system, something non-computational, and that uh, that came from quantum physics. And so uh, it was a type of quantum computer connected to the structure of the universe, which I found very appealing and interesting and had some spiritual connotations. But Roger didn't have a, a structure, a candidate structure for a quantum computer in the brain, in, uh, which could access uh, this uh, this love this much deeper level. And I thought microtubules might be what he was looking for, and his mechanism called objective reduction, a type of collapse of the wave function, giving rise to consciousness, m- might be what I was looking for. And so uh, I contacted him, and in the early 90s, we got together and started to develop our theory of how the microtubule vibrations can orchestrate or organize these objective reductions. And so our theory uh, is known as orchestrated objective reduction, ORCOR. And that was about 20 years ago, uh, actually more than that, 23, 25 years ago. And uh, it was met with a lot of criticism because people didn't think that uh, quantum effects could be functional in the warm, wet, and noisy brain but now we know that's not the case that plants utilize quantum coherence and photosynthesis and microtubules utilize quantum uh, resonance and vibrations and in fact anesthesia takes away uh, I should mention I'm an anesthesiologist I work in the operating room and and, and study anesthesia and anesthesia works by dampening quantum vibrations in microtubules uh, rather than by acting on membrane proteins a controversial area but the evidence seems to be supporting that so a deeper level in terms of going inside neurons to the microtubules and then an even deeper level going from the microtubules down to the very uh, fine scale structure of space-time geometry well, it was fascinating hearing you talk about all this and not being a scientist, you know, I picked up what I could. One of the things that you mentioned was that consciousness can exist outside of the brain. And then you talked about death and end of end of life brain activity. Can you expand on that a little bit? In about uh, oh, it was around 2000, I think there were some studies about near-death and out-of-body experiences uh, from Europe. And uh, uh, patients who had cardiac arrest reported uh, floating above their body, some of them. And the, uh, the people who did the studies were asked, uh, well, how can you explain this? And uh, they couldn't. And they said, you should ask uh, Penrose and Hameroff because they had this crazy theory. And so the BBC did a show about this called uh, The Day I Died, about a particular uh, out-of-body experience by a patient. And uh, I said, well, I don't know, but it could be that since consciousness, we think, is normally happening in this, at the level of space-time geometry in the brain, in the microtubules, that when they the blood stops flowing and oxygen stops being delivered, that the quantum information that comprises consciousness uh, kind of dissipates to the universe at large but remains entangled as kind of a quantum soul and uh, and can quite literally um, in this holographic universe be delocalized and exist independent of the biology, at least temporarily. If the patient's resuscitated, the, the quantum information goes back in and they report an out-of-body experience, for example. And if the patient doesn't survive, then it could be that this quantum information persists and maybe even uh, finds another zygote or embryo and and, uh, we have reincarnation. So I don't claim any evidence for that whatsoever, but I think there is a lot of good evidence for reincarnation in particular and out-of-body experiences. And so I think it's a potential explanation. And basically, the people who criticize the idea 
what I would say to them is that until we know for sure how consciousness is produced in the brain, we can't exclude the possibility of consciousness outside the brain. Well, I find it a fascinating topic. And then you went on and talked about ultrasound and how ultrasound has incredible potential. Tell us about that. Right. Well, um, the microtubules inside the brain have quantum vibrations at a, a series of, of uh, frequencies from the terahertz, which is in the visible light, uh, to gigahertz, which is radio frequency, to uh, uh, mic- excuse me, microwaves, then uh, megahertz, which is radio frequency in mechanical uh, in electromagnetic, but in mechanical vibrations, that's ultrasound, and then also kilohertz and hertz, which is EEG. And there are various uh, methods of stimulating or modulating the brain uh, non-invasively from the surface of the scalp. Uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation is probably the best known. Transcranial direct current stimulation, electrical, and photons even get through. And uh, then there's ultrasound, which is mechanical vibrations. So when I learned uh, from the work of uh, a guy named Anurban Banyapadye in Japan that microtubules had vibrational resonances, including in megahertz, I realized, uh, I looked around, I was in the operating room, and we have ultrasound machines that are in megahertz. And I wondered, I said, I wonder what, what would happen if you put ultrasound into the brain, whether it would cause any effect on the microtubules and therefore mental states of cognition. And I looked it up, and a guy at Arizona State University uh, named Jamie Tyler had been studying effects of ultrasound on the brain in, in mice and animals and seeing electrophysiological effects and behavioral uh, effects. And I also recognized that ultrasound was approved for brain imaging and uh, including in babies through the fontanelle where there's no skull at all. So it couldn't be that harmful. And I was talking to my uh, anesthesia colleagues, and we have uh, chronic pain uh, patients, and I said, we should try this on our chronic pain patients because they tend to be depressed, and uh, you know maybe it'll take away the pain. And one of them said, well, we don't do it on patients until we try it ourselves. You got a shaved head. Your idea, you go first. And so uh, one day at the, end of, at the end of a long day, I, I tried it. I, I put the ultrasound device up to my, with some goo to gel to make a good contact. For about 15 seconds, I was a little leery. I didn't feel a thing. I put it down. I was somewhat disappointed. But a minute, a minute or so later, I started to feel really good and energized and felt kind of uh, buzzed, if you will, with a lot of cognitive capabilities, a lot of uh, enthusiasm uh, for about an hour. And I said, we should try this on our patients. And we did and published the first uh, paper showing ultrasound effects on mental states in, uh, in humans. And since that time, uh, it's been shown that, uh, at least in mice, it, ultrasound improves Alzheimer's. And it, this could be because in Alzheimer's, the microtubules fall apart inside the neurons, uh, leading to neurofibrillary tangles from the tau protein. And also, it's been shown to uh, help in uh, traumatic brain injury in mice. And uh, so we're going to try it for, uh, we're we're launching another study on Alzheimer's and uh, traumatic brain injury. We also hope to try it on addiction and withdrawal and chronic pain. And it's it's safe as long as uh, you limit the the intensity and the, so you don't heat the brain. You don't want to heat the brain and the exposure and so forth. And, and it's pretty safe. It's painless, fairly inexpensive. So uh, we're going to see what it does for the three scourges of, three scourges of modern medicine, uh, Alzheimer's, brain injury, and addiction. See what happens. And when do you think that study will be completed? Uh, Any idea? Uh, we, we just got funding for it. So we got a ways to go. I think, uh, you know, we, we plan to, uh, to, to we, we did a pilot study with dementia patients who had to come to our clinic. 
And we had some interesting uh, encouraging signs, but bringing these uh, patients with dementia into a foreign place is not a, is not a good idea. They get disoriented just by coming in. So we're going to go to nursing homes and, uh, and you know, uh, elderly care places that, where they have a lot of patients with memory disorders and try to do it and do it there. And uh, we'll also go to neuro rehab uh, clinics to try it on patients with uh, brain injury. And then we'll go to addiction centers and try it on, on uh, patients with an acute withdrawal and see what happens. So we'll have a mobile team. Fortunately, it's portable and safe, and, uh, and we'll see what happens. I'll be fascinated to see the results of that. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to ask you about your personal experience with meditation. Do you meditate? And if you do, what's, what's it like for you? I don't meditate in any official way. I just kind of uh, uh, zoom in and and. and, and think about things and uh, I, I lose myself occasionally, but uh, usually I'm just, uh, I'm just um, contemplating the day and that sort of thing. I'm not an official, I, I've tried it. I don't really have the, the patience for it and I'm kind of, um, but maybe I should. People have told me I should, but I, I do it in, 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 a, in a, my own sort of way. Well, you had a chat with Deepak Chopra. I, I'm interested in that. I haven't seen it, but I know that it's on YouTube. What did you learn from that? What was your experience like? I've known Deepak a while, and uh, he, he comes to our conferences, the Science of Consciousness, and I've been to his conferences. And uh, he's an idealist coming from the Vedic tradition where everything is consciousness, and the material world is an illusion within consciousness. Now, I don't follow that, but uh, the other side, the other extreme would be people who are materialists and think consciousness is kind of an illusion and emerges uh, from uh, complexity and material systems. And I'm kind of in the middle with Roger Penrose, and we think that consciousness actually um, <clears throat> is connected to the fine-scale structure of the universe, but operates out of the material world, and so through quantum, quantum physics. So, as you know, in quantum physics, objects can go into superposition, but then collapse back to classical states. And Roger came up with a way, a reason why this collapse occurs, and proposed that that causes consciousness, as opposed to the observer effect in which consciousness causes collapse. In this case, its collapse causes consciousness or is equivalent to consciousness. And these, this would be happening everywhere ubiquitously in kind of proto-conscious moments here, there, and everywhere. And then the brain, the microtubules, organize and orchestrate these events into, uh, into full, rich, conscious experience. Kind of like if you go to the symphony and the orchestra's warming up and each uh, musician's playing his or her uh, instrument with uh, notes, tones, uh, sounds, and the whole thing's kind of is, is noise, cacophony. And then they begin to play, and that's music. And I think what the brain does is take these random proto-conscious moments that are occurring and organize them into full, rich, conscious experience, kind of like music. In fact, I think music is, I think consciousness is more like music than it is a computation. And the brain is more like an orchestra, a quantum orchestra, than it is a computer. Oh, that's an interesting image. I really like that. Dr. Hameroff, I always ask a question about bullying. And I mentioned that before we hit record. Um, do you have a story where, you know, maybe in, earlier in your life, a bullying situation where mindfulness would have made a difference about how you dealt with that? Well, um, when I was a kid, I was in, uh, I don't know, uh, third grade, maybe fourth grade and, uh, or maybe it's a little bit later, but, um, I went to the store for my mom and yeah. I was coming back, uh, walking, carrying a bag of groceries and the, uh, local gang of bullies came up upon me and started grabbing stuff out of my shopping bag mm -hmm. that I was carrying. And, um, 
for I didn't exert mindfulness. Instead, I just reared back to punch the guy in the in the mouth, and uh, he literally fell back. He was surprised because he was bigger than I was, and he had three or four friends, and I was expecting to get get the crap beaten out of me right then and there. But they just kind of looked at me and left. So I that's probably not the answer you were looking for, <laughs> but sometimes you have to stick up for yourself. Well, and, you do, uh, yeah. Now bullying in, in uh, you know in medicine and academic medicine particularly where you have uh, professors and clinicians with uh, residents and medical students right. uh, there has been problems with bullying you know the uh, berating and and embarrassing uh, uh, students and residents uh, and um, people uh, in medicine it's become an issue and we're counseled I, I myself don't do that uh, I tend to be on the side of the uh, the little guy I, I would say even though I'm a, I'm a clinician, a professor, and a faculty attending. But um, it's become much, much less of a problem because of this. It, it doesn't look good. It's not good for anybody. So uh, I, I'd say to its credit, uh, modern medicine has taken this issue seriously, and it's not a problem as it once was. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah. That's good to hear. Um, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30-second answers are fine. The first one is, who is one person who has been an influence in mindfulness in your life? Well, um, Roger Penrose, even though he's not into meditating, but just uh, his physics and his wisdom in a whole variety of areas has really influenced me. And uh uh, I, I think uh, he he's uh, he's not uh, he's not the mainstream because he takes issue with certain uh, you know cherished uh, beliefs in in physics like uh, cosmic inflation, multiple worlds, string theory, multiple dimensions. Uh, he doesn't believe in that, but his picture is very consistent. And uh, to give you an example, in the year two thousand, I think it was Nature did a, a survey of the ten leading physicists in the world, and they asked them about a theory of everything, what that would look like, a grand unified theory. And among them, only Roger included included consciousness in the in the big picture. And in fact, it plays a key role because it, it causes collapse and avoids the need for multiple worlds, and kind of connects uh, quantum physics and general relativity. So he's been uh, uh, intellectually the biggest influence in my life. That's not quite what you asked. But but, but it's very interesting to know, yeah, and I, our listeners will enjoy that. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? Um, I, I can get emotional, um, and I try, I've tried, especially in recent years, to be mindful and not fly off the handle. Not that I was uh, had a big temper, but I, I would tend to get, uh, especially in, in medicine and anesthesia, you tend to get stressed out. And uh, uh, we have critical situations all the time. And what I found over the years uh, is that when you're when you're in a critical situation, you know, trauma victim comes in, mm -hmm. uh, uh, stabbing, shooting, whatever, and we have you know precious few minutes to get the patient stabilized uh, from the emergency room to the operating room and get surgery going and get lines in and get airway, et cetera, et cetera, that um, I just do that and um, pretty efficiently. I've you know, been doing it a long time. And then later that that evening, you know, I go home and I start thinking about it and then I get shook up because, you know, that guy could have died. Fortunately, he didn't. We, we saved him and so forth. But when you think of all the all the decisions along the way that you make, so I'm glad I did that, and, and that could have gone wrong. So again, that doesn't really answer your question. But it, so what I do is kind of, uh, I, I act in the moment and take care of things and then kind of worry about it later. 
Well, that's interesting to know. My wife is a trauma nurse, so wow. I hear some of those same yeah. kinds of situations coming. I bet from she her. has a same, similar yeah. experience. Yeah, I think you can't so. you can't uh, start uh, getting all stressed out in the middle of it. You have to do it later. Right. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Okay. I want to ask you about breathing. Is breathing a part of your mindfulness? Do you look at that consciously? How you breathe? Well, of course, breathing in anesthesia is key. That's our main. You know, we establish the airway and breathe for the patient. But as far as my breathing, uh, I don't, uh, I, when I do get stressed, I take some deep breaths and, uh, you know, it's interesting what that actually does outside of provide oxygen and, and it changes the pH in your brain. Uh, because oh. as you, if you, if you breathe, if you hyperventilate or, or take, uh, you know, depending on the meditative practice, breathe deeply and intensely more than normal, you're going to uh, get rid of, uh, carbon dioxide and that make, makes your blood and your brain more alkalotic get rid of acid and when that happens uh it does a lot of things the microtubules extend their uh, their c-termini these little projections out and it opens gap junctions between neurons so that more neurons get connected so i wonder i've often wondered whether uh, that <clears throat> that's the mechanism by which altered states occur from meditation uh breathing meditation by opening gap junctions and including more neurons in, a, in one quantum state and that would uh, tend to expand consciousness that is fascinating. I've asked that question a lot of times and nobody has really answered in a scientific way like that. So that's pretty interesting. Can you recommend a book related to mindfulness? Maybe it's Roger's book. I don't know. But would you recommend a book related to mindfulness that our listeners could refer to? <clears throat> well, Roger's books aren't about mindfulness, but I would no. recommend them nonetheless. Uh, the classic book, The Emperor's New Mind, from 1989. And uh, about five years ago, he wrote a, a little book called Cycles of Time, which has nothing to do with anything we've spoken about, but, I, but is fascinating. He, he suggested that the universe uh, didn't start with the Big Bang, that before the Big Bang, there was another eon, which had its own Big Bang, and before that, another and another and another, and that we live in a, not a parallel universe, but a serial universe, with a big bang uh, followed by a, a heat death uh, and then billions or trillions of years later another big bang and so forth and this has been going on infinitely into the past and presumably infinitely into the future for quite liter literally an eternal universe and i wondered uh, <clears throat> i've often wondered whether obviously we have consciousness in this eon whether there was consciousness in the previous eon and uh, whether at the crossover points, the Big Bang, whether there's some uh, fine-tuning of the dimensionless constants that govern the universe to optimize consciousness, that consciousness may be guiding the universe in terms of these, these constants evolving and mutating and evolving to make the conditions optimal for consciousness. So may, possibly over eons, uh, consciousness is, is improving and enhancing and, uh, and is essentially driving the evolution of the universe. Okay. Yeah, well, that's, that's pretty fascinating. And you talked about that theory uh, in your talk yesterday. It was, it was very, very interesting to hear. You know, we've all, all heard of the Big Bang Theory, but, you know, that this is going on, has gone on practically, well, for eternity. You say that it, it could be going on for eternity, that we just have to wait and there's another one coming. <laughs> we won't make it. <laughs> but our ancestors, and maybe our consciousness will if it gets recycled. Yes. 
it, it's, it makes more sense to me than the notion that everything sprang from nothingness. I mean, what was there before the Big Bang? Well, that's the big question. Everybody yeah. says, well, how can scientists just say that all of a sudden, poof, there was this Big Bang yeah, and right. out came all this, you know, nature and human beings yeah. and our trillions of cells. And it just doesn't seem to be something that's easy to make sense of. Right. And, and apparently there's, there's new evidence for this theory of Rogers in that in the cosmic microwave background, they find concentric rings that uh, are hard to explain unless they came from some event before the Big Bang. And Roger and his colleagues claim that uh, they're due to um, uh, giant explosions of, of black hole collisions that gave rise to uh, um, these, these rings in the cosmic microwave background. And uh, some of them could be, the, from the black holes, could be what's called Hawking radiation. Um, and so they call them Hawking points. And uh, the Hawking radiation may be information that got sucked into the black hole. So uh, it's possible that information can be conserved and maybe even uh, transmitted from um, one eon to the next. That is fascinating. My last question was about uh, apps. Are there any apps that you recommend mm. that people can use? Maybe you use one or maybe some of your of your people you work with, apps to kind of help you get more focused, help you become more mindful. No, I'm sorry. I, uh, I, I don't. And, uh, I'm, when it comes to, uh, cell phones and apps, I'm, I'm not very good at them. Um, you know, I have maybe uh, four or five that I use and others have dozens or hundreds. So I'm not, I'm not able to help you there. I, I, I can barely uh, use my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure talking with you and fascinating to hear your expertise in this area. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Bruce. Good luck. Yeah. All right. Bye now. Bye bye. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. And remember what I mentioned at the top of the show, awaken with focus a 12-minute meditation just for you, recorded by me. You can be alert, focused after waking. That's what it's all about. Feel invigorated, fresh, and dynamic. Let your vibrancy feed those around you. Download this meditation to help you get going in the morning at mindfulnessmode.com slash awakenwithfocus. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode. <laughs>